Go ahead and find Proverbs 30 with me. Proverbs 30. So Solomon is, is known, uh, if I may, he's proverbial for being a wise king. And in his wisdom, he, he penned the book of Proverbs. Except Solomon is not the only author of the book of Proverbs. Because not only did he say wise things, he also collected wise sayings from other people. And I think this fits with the overall message of Proverbs pretty well. Because Solomon tells us part of wisdom is always maintaining a humble teachability. The attitude that I don't know it all, I always have more to learn, and I need to listen to other people. And so in implementation of that very attitude, what Solomon does at the end of Proverbs is include the sayings of a man named Agur at the end of his book. Now we talked about Agur last week a little bit in verses 1 through 9 in which Agur basically advises us to pray for nothing, pray for exactly nothing. We talked about the importance of praying for nothing sometimes. But I didn't want to be done with Agur because I think Agur is a pretty fascinating fellow. And one of the things Agur likes to do in the rest of Proverbs 30 is to pose riddles. What he likes to do is to string together three or four things, uh, many of them from nature, some of them from humanity, But he strings together three or four things that seem to have nothing in common. And he asks the reader to identify the common thread and think about what that might be. He's a keen observer of nature, both animal nature and human nature. He has carefully watched what happens in the world around him. He's identified trends. And from those, he draws lessons about the kind of world we live in and how to get along in that world. But to give those lessons, he doesn't just tell us the answer. He doesn't just say, here's what you're supposed to do in your life. He strings us along. He doesn't tell us the answer. He helps us ask the right questions. He doesn't just want to tell us how to live. He wants to teach us how to think. And I think that's part of what he's doing with these riddles. You've got to puzzle out what it is he means. So what I want to do this morning is to walk through, very briefly, the six riddles of Agur. The six riddles of Agur. Number one. I'm going to call the trajectory of evil. That's what the first riddle is about. This is verse 11. Proverbs 30 and verse 11. There are those who curse their fathers and do not bless their mothers. There are those who are clean in their own eyes but are not washed of their filth. There are those, how lofty are their eyes, how high their eyelids lift. There are those whose teeth are sword, whose fangs are knives, to devour the poor from off the earth and the needy from mankind. So what we have here is a list of four kinds of evil. We could summarize in this way. The rebellious in verse 11, the self-righteous in verse 12, the proud in verse 13, and the ruthless in verse 14. Now, what's his point here? Is he just saying that these kinds of people exist? There are these kinds of people and there are these kinds of people. Is that what he's saying? I think we need to give Agur a little more credit than that. Again, the thing about a riddle is that the author doesn't hold your hand and put the lesson for you in big, bold letters at the end, as much as we might like that. So what do we notice about this little collection? And I think one good question to ask in these riddles is this. What's the the trajectory of the riddle? Where does it start and where does it end? There's a good place place to start. Well, notice in verse 11, the riddle starts with a bad kid, someone who doesn't honor his, his parents, It starts with a bad kid in verse 11, and it ends basically in cannibalism in verse 14. Metaphorically, but nevertheless, you get the vicious image. Those with teeth uh, as swords, whose fangs are knives to devour the poor from off the earth, the needy 
from mankind. There seems to be a progression from an initial rebellion against one's parents to the worst kind of full-grown evil you can imagine. And then, in between that evil man's infancy and maturity is his psychology in verses 12 and 13. And so there's the infancy of evil, there's the maturity of it in verse 14, and in between is the psychology of it. So if I can reconstruct or, or decode the riddle, it starts at home in verse 11, where a man curses his father and refuses to bless his mother. And if a man does not honor the authority of his parents, the first and most basic relationship we ever have, is he likely, is he likely to, to respect the authority of anyone or anything else in his life? If he can't respect the authority of that most basic relationship, certainly doesn't bode well for his relationship with the God who gave him life if he cannot respect the parents who gave him life. Well, instead of honoring his parents in verse 11, who does he honor in verse 12? There are those who are clean in their own eyes but are not washed of their filth. He honors himself in spite of the fact that his character in reality is filthy which is quite a strong word, I am told, a word that can mean something like covered in excrement. In spite of the fact that his character is filthy, in his own eyes it says he is clean. Nothing could be further, by the way, from Agur's humble attitude in the beginning of this chapter when he says, I am nothing and I know nothing. This man says, I am clean when he is not. He is self-righteous through and through. And when one thinks of himself so highly, how does he tend to think about other people? If you are the greatest, what does everyone else become? Well, not the greatest, less than me. Verse 13, there are those how lofty their eyes, how high their eyelids lift. We have sayings that that go along these same lines. We say things like, he looks down his nose at everyone. His, uh, His eyelids lift high. To him, everyone else is an object of scorn. Not worthy of his attention, lower life forms. I think the riddle is raising the question, Where does all this evil in our world come from? Where does all this horrible evil come from? How can people so heartlessly abuse and hurt others? How in the world do we get the people from verse 14? And Agur's answer is, they're not born. They're made. They're made by dysfunctional homes, verse 11. And by perverted patterns of thought, verses 12 and 13. You know, if the devil was in his lab trying to concoct a person who felt free to be as ruthless and, 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 and irreverent as the person in verse 14, as ruthless and cruel as the man in verse 14, if the devil's trying to make that guy, this would be exactly the formula. First, destabilize the home so he can't respect his parents or the God who gave him life, and then let him deify himself, and then let him dehumanize others. And that's the formula from which you get the man in verse 14. What Agur is doing is putting his finger on the trajectory of evil. It begins in the home and in the heart. When people and when societies go bad, they go bad because homes are in disarray and because people think they're at the center of the universe. It's a good thing human nature has changed so radically in the last 3,000 years, isn't it, that we don't have this problem? I don't think so. And so what we get, number one, when we decode it is, I think, a statement about the trajectory of evil. How do we get the people in verse 14 and you trace it back to the beginning of verse 11? Which brings us to riddle number two. This is a riddle about the insatiable appetite. Verse 15. The leech has two daughters. Give and give. Three things are never satisfied. 
four never say enough. And here are the four things. Sheol, the barren womb, the land never satisfied with water, and the fire that never says enough. And so we've got in verse 15 the leech. Leeches are blood-sucking parasites who attach themselves to a host and leech off of them. And, and what Acre imagines in verse 15 are the leech's offspring. I imagine them as twins. He has twin leeches, and he gives them the same name. Their, their name is Give. One is named Give, and so is the other. And so the leech has two daughters, Give and Give. They are named after what they constantly say, their outlook on life, which is Give, Give, More, More. They are never satisfied. They're never satiated. They're always bloodthirsty. That's the leech. Acre then lists four more things that are never quenched or satisfied. And so the first he mentions in verse 16 is Sheol. Sheol is the place of the dead. And his point about Sheol is it never runs out of room. That people continue to die day after day, but Sheol never says, we've reached full capacity, no more dead people, please. Sheol never says that. There's always more room in Sheol. This is Isaiah 5 and verse 14 when the prophet Notice this phenomenon. He said, Sheol has enlarged its throat and opened its mouth without measure. There's no filling it up. It's appetite. So Sheol only ever says give, and Sheol never says that's enough. Thank you very much. Next, verse 16, the barren womb is something else that never says enough. It only says give. The idea here seems to be that that a woman who longs for children but has none will not just shrug it off and have her disappointment easily quenched. She will only keep saying, give, which is exactly what Rachel says to Jacob when she cannot have kids. She says in Genesis 30 and verse 1 to Jacob, give me children or else I die. That is never satiated, that desire. The next, in verse 16, is the land. The land never satisfied with water. You know, after a really good rain, the earth never says, you know, that was nice. We're good for the next few years. We don't need any more rain. I remember, I guess back in the early 2010s, there was a pretty big drought in Texas. And then for the next few years, there was like record rain. But I remember in those times when it was raining, every time it rained and it was always raining, people said, ah, we needed it. We always need rain, don't we? We never don't need it, pretty much. The land only ever says, give more rain. And it never says, that's enough, I'm full. And then finally, verse 16, is the fire. A fire will never refuse more logs. A forest fire doesn't stop because it's had its share of trees and says, that's enough. It only stops if it runs out of trees. Fire only ever says, give, and it never says, that's enough. Now, what is this riddle about? What is it that that Agar wants us to notice? Just that these things exist? Again, give him a little more credit. It's a riddle about insatiability, the unquenchable appetite. Agar has looked around the world and seen how much of it is characterized by this phenomenon, insatiability. And what we're meant to do, I think, is to continue to think along those lines because we still live in a world that's governed by by the logic of the leech. Give, give, more, more, and never enough. We still live in that world. We live in a culture that only ever says more and never enough. More money, more gadgets, 
more toys, more pleasure, more experiences, more food, more entertainment. The question is, is this really the shape we want our lives to conform to? Is the leech what we want to be emulating our entire lives? Is there a stopping place for our appetites? Is contentment possible in a world like ours? Is there a way to pray for nothing like Edgar advised us to do? Is there a way to be content with our relationship with God and not always need something else and never be satisfied? Is that possible or are we just another thing in this world that's always saying give and is never saying enough? It's about the insatiable appetite. It's a phenomenon you see throughout the world and the question is, are you just going to be another leech, another unthinking animal always wanting more or do you have a higher way, a higher way of living, a content way of living? Which brings us to number three. Riddle number three is what I'm going to call explanation-defying wonders. What Eager does is list four, and I'm going to argue five things, that defy explanation. This is verse 18. Three things are too wonderful for me. Four I do not understand. And here are the four things. The way of an eagle in the sky. The way of a serpent on a rock. The way of a ship on the high seas. And the way of a man with a virgin. So four things that defy explanation. Number one, the way of an eagle in the sky. How does an eagle manage to effortlessly hang midair hundreds of feet above the ground? How does it do that? It's not even trying. It doesn't even flap its wings. It just sort of hangs up there effortlessly. Now, don't talk to me about wind currents and the bone structures of eagles and all of that. That's not the point. Just appreciate the marvel. Have you ever just stood back and looked at the wonder of creation and said, how is it that that can happen? I could never make this up. The next one, the way of a serpent on the rock defies explanation. How can a smooth-bellied snake with no legs climb to the top of a smooth rock and stay there? You know, scientists are still trying to explain how snakes manage to move so efficiently without legs. There's a name for it. They call it concertina locomotion. Study of of the movement of snakes. You ever seen a snake climb a tree? They can. Isn't that wild? Could you ever invent such a creature that looked like that and could have all those abilities? What he's saying is, it's just a strange world we live in, isn't it? Next, the way of a ship on the high seas defies explanation. How is it that a massive ship weighed down with hundreds of tons of cargo can float in the ocean... But if you drop your cell phone in the water, it drops straight to the bottom. Isn't that weird? How is it that that's the way the world works? If you stop and think about it, it's just strange. It's just strange, all the stuff we take for granted. And then finally, verse 19, the way of a man with a virgin defies explanation. What he's describing here is the magnetic attraction young men have to young women. We're still at a loss to explain all the science of attraction and beauty. We could talk about hormones and all that, but even then, we're, we, we just don't have a good handle on it. And the people who have the hardest time describing love and attraction are people who are in love. They can't even make a coherent sentence about how they feel. It's just a way, it's something that defies explanation. We all know it's there, we all know its power and its draw, and it's just the world we live in. It defies explanation. Now, what we have so far are four observations that are fairly innocent and just sort of interesting. Here, isn't it interesting the world we live in? 
And what I think what, 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 what Eger is doing to us is setting us up for a jarring fifth explanation-defying thing in our world, and it's in verse 20. This is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. So we've got four innocent observations about the, about the wonders of the world, but then there is a jarring fifth about how some people can do such evil with no compunction and no remorse. And so there is the adulteress, who is a common character in Proverbs. And it seems she has basically just finished the sin that gives her her name, which is often euphemistically described as eating. And when she gets done with her meal, she cleans herself up, totally content with her life and her choices. And were you to go inquire about why she does the thing that she does, she wouldn't know what you're talking about. She would say, what? What are you talking about? I'm fine. This is life. This is good. And so one man has put it this way. The greatest wonder of all, and that which is most beyond understanding, may be mankind's utter insensibility to the creation and the gifts of God. How can a creature so quickly and so thoroughly forget their creator? That is the greatest explanation-defying wonder of all, Agur is saying. See, Agur's riddle captures both the awe-inspiring wonder of God's creation, which is all around us, and at the same time the head-shaking realities of sin in the fallen world. What Agur is saying is that all around us, we can find evidence for the truth of Genesis 1 and 2, that this is a good creation made by God, wonderful and interesting, as well as affirm the truths of Genesis 3, which is this is a fallen world in which those creatures who should be walking around with their mouths hanging open at the wonder of God's creation and gratitude for the God who made them, those same people could go around doing the worst sins you can imagine, wiping their mouth and said, what? I haven't done anything wrong. That is the greatest explanation-defying wonder of all. Which brings us to riddle number four. What I'm going to call earthly irritants. And I mean that... Uh, very, uh, very specifically, very literally. That is, not which irritants which live on the earth, but things that irritate the earth itself. That's what this is about. Verse 21. Under three things, the earth trembles. Under four, it cannot bear up. Here are the four things. A slave when he becomes a king. A fool when he is filled with food. An unloved woman when she gets a husband. And a maidservant when she displaces his mistress. What these are are riddles about people who are so unbearable. There's two men and two women in the list. Riddles about people so unbearable that even the earth can't stand it. And I think what they all have in common is that they are all unprepared to handle their good fortune. Good things happen to them, and it's the worst thing in the world. So we have, first of all, a slave when he becomes king. There's actually a story about this in, in, the, in the king's narratives. There's a guy named Zimri who was previously a slave who displaces Asa from the throne and Zimri proceeds to be an absolute disaster of a king. It's the story played out in many revolutions, by the way, which is the skills it takes to run a successful revolution rarely translate into running a successful government. That the slave may be well-equipped to run a revolution, but he's not well-equipped to run a government. A man sees his power only to use that power to get even with everyone who wronged him and become a despot. You know, the, the Russian czars in uh, the beginning of the 20th century, they, they weren't the greatest guys in the world. 
But you know, you overthrow them, and you know what you might get instead of a czar? You might get Joseph Stalin. And that's kind of worse, isn't it? That's the point. A slave, when he becomes a king, is unbearable. It's irritating to the earth. Next, a fool when he is filled with food. This is probably about more than just a a good meal. It's probably about prosperity in general and how it is fools handle prosperity. You know, when a fool wins the lottery, it's actually not good news. It's not good news for him. It brings the worst out of him. It accentuates his selfishness and his obnoxiousness. And in the end, he's probably just going to be worse off for his good fortune. He would have been better with little. He would have at least stayed humble in his foolishness. But now that he has much, now he's proud in his foolishness. And then verse 23. An unloved woman, when she gets a husband. This is unbearable to the earth. Now, the word here for unloved, I'm told, is more commonly translated hated. It's probably meant as a stronger word than just not love, but rather a hated woman. What it's about is about a bitter and discontent woman getting a husband. It's about how marriage does not solve her bitterness. It just creates another victim of her bitterness. It's not the answer to all her problems if all her problems are tied up inside her heart. An external change won't fix that. It only makes more victims, more victims of her bitterness. And finally, the end of verse 23, a maidservant when she displaces her mistress. This is unbearable to the earth. This This would be similar to the slave becoming king. Someone who's not fit for their position being given it anyway. There's another biblical story about this. You remember when Hagar becomes sort of a second wife to Abram? What does Hagar do to Sarah? She torments. She torments her, and it's a disaster. So what's, what's this riddle about? That not all good things that happen to us are good for us. Not all the good fortune we experience is good for us, especially if we have glaring character flaws. Getting power and getting money will not solve all our problems. In fact, they will probably only accentuate all the problems that were already there. Getting married is not the solution to our unhappiness. If we are bitter and discontent in our singleness, then we will just bring that bitterness and discontent to our marriage. We tend to assume external change is all that happens between us and circumstances. If only this thing were different in the world, my life would be better. When in reality, it's internal change. The stuff that happens between our ears that's our greatest need. Not something for happening not for something to happen to us, but for something to happen in us. That's what irritates the earth, when we don't understand that. Number five. Number five, we have the power of small. Verse 24. Four things on earth are small, but they are exceedingly wise. Here are the things. The ants are a people not strong, yet they provide their food in the summer. Rock badgers are a people not mighty, yet they make their homes in the cliffs. The locusts have no king, yet all of them march in rank. The lizard you can take in your hands, yet it is in king's palaces. So we have, first of all, the ant. Ants aren't particularly impressive creatures. We know they're strong for their size, and that's kind of impressive, but they're so small it's not, it's not overly impressive. So I can see an ant carry a crumb that's bigger than it. That's kind of interesting, but still, I'd rather see an elephant strength than an ant. But what is it that impresses Agur about ants? Well, he says they provide their food in summer. There is a wisdom 
to ants. Not found many other places in nature. Ants work hard and ants plan ahead. And the book of Proverbs loves to use ants as exemplars. This is Proverbs 6 and verse 8. Having no chief officer or ruler, ants prepare their food in summer and gather provision in the harvest. That what they lack in size, they make up for in planning and work. Verse 26, the rock badger. This is an animal about the size of a rabbit, maybe a little bigger. Not a particularly mighty, impressive species. Uh, Under normal circumstances, just walking in a field, easy prey for most predators. But what's impressive about the rock badger? Well, it's the rock part. They make their homes in the cliffs. Rock badgers live at high elevation, under harsh conditions, at high altitudes, to stay out of reach of most predators. What they lack in size and strength, they make up for in resilience and in wisdom. Now, verse 27, you wouldn't think twice if you saw a grasshopper. Grasshoppers don't have mighty kings. They don't have big, uh, big impressive capital buildings, no government. And yet it says, each of them march in rank. There, there is an incredible unity and power in a swarm of locusts and incredible destruction. Just look at the Exodus and the plagues. Just look at the book of Joel, which is about a swarm of locusts. What they lack in leadership, what they lack in individual impressiveness, they make up for in unity. And then verse 28. Different, different uh, animals are named here. The King James Version has spider here in verse 28. Um, lizard is what mine has. I'm told lizard is probably the right word. The point is you can hold a lizard in your hand. You know, we've got little geckos. I guess they're geckos around the house. And uh, the kids are kind of interested in them. I don't think much of them. Nothing to it. Just a little lizard. Except it wouldn't be at all unexpected to go into the king's palace in that day and to find a little lizard there too. That through his ingenuity, through his persistence, he can go places you'll never go. You will never get into a king's residence. You will never get there. But a lizard could. A lizard can go places you can't. See, Acre has, has observed all these unimpressive creatures And he has discovered a profound truth, which is size and power and strength are not everything. In fact, sometimes they're a liability. These small creatures are capable of things a lion could never do. Work, wisdom, resilience, unity, cunning are often more powerful than raw power. What Edgar has noticed basically is this. David versus Goliath plays itself out in nature all the time. And at some point, maybe we'd learn. Bigger isn't always better. Power isn't the most impressive and and powerful thing in the world. Sometimes small, sometimes wise, sometimes cunning is the thing we really really need. Finally, number six, is a riddle about what I'm going to call play-acting stateliness. This is verse 29. Three things are stately in their tread. Four are stately in their stride. The lion which is mightiest among beasts and does not turn back before any, the strutting cock, the he-goat, and the king whose army is with him. So this is a riddle we are told about stateliness, four things which are stately in their tread. The idea here is here are things that are especially dignified, things that walk around unhurried, unthreatened, grand. They're not worried about you. They're doing their own thing. No one's going to mess with them and they know it. At least they think it. It's a picture of someone totally confident, not afraid of anyone else, unconcerned with the opinion of anyone else. And so the lion in verse 30 is the perfect example. He's the king of the jungle. 
He's at the top of the food chain. He is the hunter and not the hunted. And he walks around and you know he knows that. Now, the next animal is translated in many different ways. Uh, mine has rooster. Uh, some have the war horse. Some have the greyhound. And the reason it's translated all these different ways is because the literal Hebrew is this. The, the literal translation would be this. The girded of loins. The girded of loins. Um, which is thought to have been a nickname for a particular kind of animal ancient readers would have known about, but has escaped, has escaped us. Um, but I think the strutting rooster gets the point across pretty well. Um, a peacock would work. That would get the idea. Someone who struts around, you know, I'm, I'm kind of it. And so does the next animal, the he-goat, the billy-goat. Walks around like he owns the place. And then finally, you've got the human example of stateliness, which is a king with his army. Now, we have a sarcastic comeback to people who try to order us around, who we don't think uh, uh, it's their place to tell us what to do, and they tell us to do something, and we say, yeah, you and whose army? Well, this guy has one, and no one tells him what to do. He and his army will tell you what to do, and you will not tell him what to do. The king with his army, any room he goes in, he knows he can, do, he can say what he wants, he can get what he wants. Now, what's the point of this riddle? I actually think the last two verses of the chapter help decode this riddle. This is verse 32. If you have been foolish, exalting yourself, or if you have been devising evil, put your hand on your mouth. For pressing milk produces curds, pressing the nose produces blood, and pressing anger produces strife. See, there, there is a temptation to act like the creatures of verses 29 through 31. To walk around with your chest puffed out, to act like your hot stuff. But we are advised in verse 32 that the reality is you only set yourself up for humiliation. If you have been foolish exalting yourself, if you've been acting like these people, these creatures in 29 through 31, put your hand on your mouth. Tap the brakes. There is a reality, which is that none of us are the king of the jungle. And if we act like we are, foolishly exalting yourself, we are begging for strife. One of the through lines in Agur's Proverbs has been humility. That's how he opened his section in 1 through 4. The way of pride is ultimately the way of strife. And the way of pride, ironically, is ultimately the way to humiliation. Because you know what? Even the lion, the king of the jungle, eventually gets old and gets eaten by, by jackals, doesn't he? Even the lion has the lie of his stateliness exposed, the lie of his pride. Those who live by might die by might. The way of humility is always the way to wisdom. So what we have in Agur is a man who has carefully watched what happens in the world around him. He has seen the way the world works, and from his observations of nature and animals and people, he draws lessons about the kind of world we live in and how to get along in that world. And so through his riddles he teaches us, that the evil and ruthless don't become that overnight. They grow into it through rebellion and pride and arrogance. The home and the heart is where that dysfunction begins. The greedy have appetites, he says, which are never satisfied. And we're going to have to work hard and go against the grain to learn to be content. Because everything around us is always saying, give, give, give. He says there are going to be wonderful things in God's creation beyond human comprehension. There are also terrible things in this world which are beyond comprehension. He says good things that happen to us might not be good for us. 
Our deepest problems are internal, which means external things we might hope for, money, power, marriage. Those external things cannot make us whole, and they often just make us and everyone else more miserable. He teaches us size and strength on everything, and he teaches us that the proud need to tap the brakes before their pride is unmasked as a mere bluster. Let me just say one more thing before we're done. Let us never think and let us never say that the Bible is just some ancient document, irrelevant to our modern lives, out of touch with the way things are now. Now, to qualify, a preacher can be out of touch, to be sure. A preacher can be irrelevant in what he says, but the Bible never is. That's the preacher's fault, not the Bible's. See, Agur has human nature pegged. He understands the way people work, and in a way, Google's algorithm will never reveal to you. If we will have ears to hear, we will discover insights about the world we live in. We will better understand the people that we come across. And most of all, we'll understand the inner workings of our own hearts if we'll have ears to hear the riddles of anger. So maybe there's someone here this evening that sees the wisdom of this book, the wisdom of this man that exposes us for what we really are, exposes our foibles, exposes our faults, exposes our pride, and shows us a better way to live. Maybe you realize you need that better way to live. We'll point you where Agur does, and that is to God. We know nothing, and he knows everything. If you need to throw yourself before his feet, to seek his forgiveness, to put on Christ in baptism, whatever your need, come forward now as we stand and sing. Be more.